This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the television show succession. Now, I'm a little behind on finishing the show. I just finished it like a couple of weeks ago. I had it spoiled for me online, so I was like, I might as well just finish the show since I know what the end is going to be like. Um, But I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit on the podcast because I think there are some very interesting relational dynamics in the show, uh, as well as kind of the way that wealth plays a role in the show and in the characters' lives. So if you haven't watched Succession, uh, this is going to be a big spoiler alert up top. Like, we're we're getting into it. We're going to talk about the ending. Um, So if you don't want to hear about it, uh, skip this episode and come back to it after you've seen the show. If you haven't seen the show and you will never see the show, basically all you need to know is that it is about a very wealthy family that owns a massive media conglomerate with news entertainment, cruises, etc. And it's really about the three children, well, there's four children, but three of the children fighting for who will become the successor of this media empire and the way that their father kind of plays with them and pits them against each other in their quest to take over this massive media empire. Now, an an interesting thing that might not be super obvious from the outset is that a lot of the characters in Succession are based on Rupert Murdoch's family. Rupert Murdoch is the man who owns Fox News and the Fox Corporation. And much of the plot lines in Succession kind of parallel what happens in the Murdoch family. Now, Rupert Murdoch is still alive. Logan Roy, the patriarch of the family in Succession, dies in the fourth uh, season. So that is a a big difference. But um, there's a great article that I linked in the sources page um, from the Intelligencer that kind of goes over how the Murdoch family mirrors what's going on in succession. The writers have been like vague to be like, oh, it's like kind of based on the Murdochs, kind of not. Um, But the head writer and showrunner actually wrote a play called Murdoch before he wrote Succession that is like very much about Rupert Murdoch so I think we can confidently say that it is pretty paralleled. Now the Intelligencer article also goes into other famous families like the Kennedys that uh, references to them kind of pop up in the show as well but the Murdoch family is definitely much more in depth. Um, So I thought I'd go through a couple of them just so you see them um, because I think it is very interesting. So the first parallel is that both Logan Roy from Succession and Rupert Murdoch uh, have their children compete for succession rights. Uh, At this moment, I believe Murdoch sold off most of his company to Disney. 
but still owns like Fox News and some other um, pieces of it. And he put one of his sons, Lachlan, in charge. However, before he had put Lachlan in charge, he allegedly had the children kind of duke it out for who would be um, taking over his empire and then sold off much of his empire. And that's very similar to what Logan Roy does before his death. He is not named a successor. He's not told the children who he thinks will take over. And every season he kind of plays them against each other and and picks a different one. Um, And then when he dies, he's in the middle of a massive deal that would sell off most of Waystar, their company, and leave them with just the news outlet, which is called ATN in the show, but is pretty much an exact clone of Fox News. Both Logan Roy and Rupert Murdoch's stories started with them buying newspapers and then building a media corporation from there. Both have pretty intense surveillance issues by uh, having cameras everywhere. Um, One of the episodes in, I think, season four shows that Logan has cameras in his own home in every room, and that's discovered when Greg, one of the cousins of the family, is bragging to Tom, one of the son-in-laws, about hooking up with a girl in one of the bedrooms, and Tom is like, you've basically made... Logan a sex tape because he's got every room filmed. Uh, A story came out about Murdoch having cameras in his ex-wife's house. Um, His ex, well, one of his ex-wives, he has four, I believe. Um, Jerry Hall, who actually is involved with Mick Jagger in an interesting, like, (laughs) twist of a celebrity. Um, But when they, after their divorce was finalized, she got a home um, in the settlement. And when she moved into the home, she realized that there were cameras in the house and the cameras were sending the footage back to Murdoch. So both surveil everyone uh, in their network, even people that aren't like necessarily very close to. Both have actually arranged family therapy sessions. So apparently Murdoch has done this. He's like gathered all his family together and then surprised them with a therapist to do like a whole family therapy breakdown. In season one of Succession, Logan Roy does the same thing where he gathers all of the kids at... Um, Kendall's or Connor's ranch and then brings in a therapist and kind of makes them all sit down together and this is at a time when the family is really torn apart Kendall has been kicked out of the business he's relapsed on the drugs that he was using and is suing his brother Roman so the highest like contentious point in the in their relationships and they're being forced to sit down and do family therapy and that mirrors what happened in real life with the Murdochs apparently Um, As for the children, so there are four children in succession um, that kind of map onto some of Murdoch's children. He technically has six children, um, but the the succession children map onto four of them. The first, the eldest son in succession, whose name is Connor, he mirrors Rupert's daughter Prudence, who is the only child from Rupert's first marriage. That's similar to in the show, Connor is the only child from Logan's first marriage. And Prudence is the only one of the Murdoch children who's not trying to take over the business empire and is kind of like pushed out of that. Very similar in succession, Connor is never seriously considered for the position of CEO, um, even in childhood, and he's kind of seen to be like not quite a part of the core family because he has a different mom. Connor's story also has a lot of other kind of messed up stuff in it that I I won't have time to talk about too much, but there's like insinuations that Logan had his mother 
uh, institutionalized after uh, Logan wanted to divorce her. And so Connor was kind of separated from his mother by force and for most of his childhood and was pretty much kind of like the black sheep compared to the other three who got to grow up with their mom before Logan divorced his second wife. Um, Kendall, although Kendall is the second oldest son in the show, he mirrors the youngest Murdoch son, James, who, uh, although for much of his life was trying to be part of the Murdoch family and trying to be a part of the businesses, has uh, in the last few years really distanced himself from the family and the political views and has come out against the direction that like Fox News is going in. This is very similar to what Kendall does at the end of season two and into season three, where he basically tries to throw his own father under the bus and say that his dad is evil and taking the corporation in a bad way. Now, from what I've read, James, the Murdoch child, hasn't done something like that. Um, But he has now like publicly denounced some of the things that are said on Fox News, which are pretty much taken to be statements that are aligned with Rupert Murdoch. So whatever Fox News says is probably whatever Rupert Murdoch believes. Um, Then we have Roman, the youngest son in succession, who maps onto the uh, other one of Lachlan's, uh, Murdoch's son, Lachlan Murdoch, who actually became the successor of Fox. Lachlan and James, they have a a sibling rivalry that's pretty similar to Roman and Kendall in the show and actually shared power in the same way that Roman and Kendall do. So in the beginning seasons before Kendall, it kind of blows things up and and moves out of the company. They are um, like co-chairs or something like they have some sort of um, Roman is like the COO and Kendall is supposed to become the CEO um, that was very similar to how Lachlan and James were set up. One of them was the COO and the other was a CEO. As we move into season four and season three, we see that Kendall and Roman try to take on these co-CEO rows, roles and then Kendall ultimately advised to become the single CEO of the company. Um, Lachlan Murdoch in the Murdoch family is the one who's more in line with pushing the political agenda to the right wing and taking a more propagandistic approach. So he's kind of behind the um, temperament of, of Fox News. And this really maps on to the way that Kendall and Roman diverge in season four, um, which is a, a, a season about an election. And Roman really backs the kind of far right candidate, the fascist candidate, and Kendall is really torn between do we pick the far right candidate that will suit our business needs or do we back the democratic, more liberal candidate who will be better for the country? And then lastly, we have Shiv, who in succession is the only daughter. Uh, She maps on very similar to Elizabeth Murdoch, who in the Murdoch family um, at first tried to kind of branch out on her own. She went into like NBC broadcasting, um, although she did purchase her NBC affiliate with a $35 million loan from her father. Um, But she did try to kind of branch out and went away from the Fox kind of family of companies then later tried to get back into the company um in fact her media company was bought out by her dad and then she was given a chair or a seat on the board however she had to withdraw from 
the Murdoch board because shareholders sued saying she only got the spot because of nepotism. And that's very, very similar to Shiv, who when we first start the show, she was working for a, you know, progressive kind of Bernie Sanders clone candidate, although her father runs, you know, one of the worst (laughs) right wing news companies in the country. She's very much trying to draw a line between herself and the family. Then when the promise of becoming CEO is dangled in front of her by Logan, she jumps right back into the company. Um, But no one ever really takes her seriously in the show as a candidate for CEO because it's very much seen as like, you're only even in the running because you're Logan's daughter. You don't really have the experience necessary. And like people say this to her face. Um, and, And ultimately Shiv's decision, her vote on the board... Um, has to do more with like her garnering her own power versus like protecting the family. So I think, you know, I don't think Elizabeth Murdoch did anything like that. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not too in the weeds on that, but I think the, the kind of push pull between trying to make it on your own and then coming back into the family fold is really the way that Shiv represents Elizabeth Murdoch. So I, I just think it's very interesting that this, these, this cast of characters is based on this kind of like media tycoon of Rupert Murdoch. And, you know, although it's, it's not like autobiographical or you know, a documentary, it is an interesting perspective to think of the way that this family orients themselves around wealth. And that's actually another thing that I noticed about the show is that wealth is kind of like an additional character in the show. You know, they always say about Sex and the City that New York was like the fifth character. I think wealth is the fifth character in succession. You don't have the relationships or the um, plot points if you don't have massive wealth at the center of this family. They're willing to backstab and betray each other just to maintain their level of wealth, even if it means that they may never speak to a sibling again or that they're going to have some sort of, you know, tense family reunion, it's more important for them to maintain their wealth and their power. Um, and this is actually like something that's explicitly said in a conversation that Tom and Shiv have, where Tom, who is married to Shiv, just tells her like, I like my things, I like having money. And, you know, you can't blame me for that because you also like your things and like having your money. I've talked about this in, in previous episodes, but there is, uh, you know, a non, a non-insignificant research base to show that wealth does uh, have something to do with the way that we perceive other people and massive amounts of wealth can impair empathy. And I think that that plays out on the show Succession. There are very shallow yet very intense relationships. And I'm going to talk about a couple that I think stand out the most. But the way that I think the way that it's exemplified is the way that Logan Roy toys with his children. He is constantly pitting them against each other. He promises the CEO position to pretty much all of the children, except for Connor, who always gets left out and is always seen as like the weird one. But he will promise the CEO ship to each of the children, sometimes back to back, like sometimes his vacillation between who he's going to pick is so quick that it's within the span of just a few episodes. It's not even like, you know, a full season of the show. And Logan Roy is not a dumb character. He is very much aware of the toll 
that this kind of pitting his children against each other is going to take on their relationships, but he doesn't seem to care. What he seems to care about most is accumulating and maintaining his power and wealth, even at the end when he's essentially selling off the company to a tech startup so that, you know, he can kind of go out with a bang rather than, you know, handing off the company to one of his children. And at the time that he dies in season four, he still has not picked a successor, which is kind of why the show is called Succession, because the whole thing is about who will succeed uh, Logan after he dies. Um, And so even in death, even when he's gone from the show, the children are still pitted against each other, still vying for power up until the very last moment. While there are you know, an abundance of messed up family dynamics in every level of, you know, socioeconomic status, I can't help but divorce or not divorce the wealth from the family dynamic that Logan perpetuates, that if there wasn't this immeasurable wealth and power behind every decision that he makes, I don't know if he would be toying with them as much. I think no matter how much money he ended up with, he would always be a distant father. He seems incapable of like really connecting with his family. But the way that wealth clouds those relationships makes them to him seem like objects, like pawns in his power plays more so than real life people who are hurt by his decisions. Now, I will say before I get into this next section here where I talk about each of the relationships that I think stand out to me, um, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the characters in this show. I think that's the point. Um, you you can feel sympathetic for if you watch it on the level of these are just people in a family trying to figure out how to relate to each other. I think you can have some sympathy for them. But if you look at it a little bit like stepped back as like these are incredibly wealthy and powerful people who are not only playing with each other, but playing with the lives of other people just to feel like they have a little bit of power and hang on to their wealth. It's it's kind of hard to watch and it's hard to feel sympathy for them because they have everything that they could ever want. And even if their company gets sold off, they will be set for life. They, they don't need this company to live. They're not living paycheck to paycheck. They are trying to finance a lifestyle of mega yachts and penthouse apartments and, you know, the most lavish lifestyle that they can have. And so I think if you watch it on that level, it's it's very interesting to watch them devote so much energy to just accumulating wealth when they're already far more wealthy than, you know, 99.9% of us could ever imagine. So uh, we're going to take a quick little break. And then when we get back, we will talk about the relationships that I think stand out the most from this show. Okay, and we are back. I'm going to first start with talking about Tom and Shiv. They are probably the most in interesting, entrancing relationship to me. Um, I, I paid the most attention to them, I think, during the show. And I think the evolution that their relationship goes through in the show is very interesting. So from the top, their relationship is very transactional to the point of almost being platonic. They both want something out of each other. Tom wants to marry Shiv or be with Shiv because she is the ticket to Logan Roy. You don't work your way up that company without being uh, connected to the family in some way. Like all of the people at the top are old family friends with Logan or his children. And so Tom knows if he wants to make it big, 
he's going to have to be plugged into that family. And so Siobhan, Shiv, is his ticket to wealth. Shiv, on the other hand, she doesn't need a ticket to wealth because she's a Roy, right? She's part of the family. But Shiv does need or wants from him the emotional power. She wants someone who just completely adores her and is beholden to her and will tolerate anything that she does to them. And I think this is most exemplified by the scene that takes place on their wedding night. They, This is in season one. They were engaged for most of the season. The kind of finale is their wedding. And on their wedding night, she announces to him that they're going to have an open relationship. Not that she wants to have a conversation about an open relationship. Not that that's something that she's wanted to consider and, and not something that they've been having conversations about leading up to this point, but just announces that this is what she wants. And we, the audience, have seen that she's been having affairs during their engagement, and she clearly wants to continue doing that. But what she gets out of this interaction is Tom agreeing. And he he's clearly uncomfortable. In fact, that becomes a major part of their relationship is her bringing up things that are like sexually adventurous um, and Tom being incredibly uncomfortable with them, but continuing to engage with them um, or trying to slip out of them while kind of talking on both sides of his mouth by saying like he's interested in them, but he's not quite up to it right now because he knows that he can't rock the boat too much or he loses his meal ticket. So they're locked in this very toxic dynamic where she can do whatever she wants and have like this ultimate power over him And Tom will, like, succumb to it, right? Will not fight back. However, the relationship starts to flip toward the end of the season. Um, The end of season three, we see that Tom actually sold out the kids to Logan, and which resulted in the kids getting cut out of a big deal that Logan is, is coming up with. And there's a very powerful scene at the end of season three where... The kids are, they've rushed off to this like Italian villa where their dad is doing this deal and they're all in there trying to argue with him and, he, and Logan leaves the room and as, has, as he's leaving the room, Tom comes running up and Logan pats him on the shoulder and that is all the confirmation that we the audience need and it's all the confirmation that Shiv needs to know that Tom was the one who called their father before they got there so that he could outmaneuver them. And from that moment on, the power dynamic has completely shifted And season four is the kind of reorganizing of this relationship. Tom starts to draw more boundaries with her. He tells her that he's like not okay with stuff. They actually end up having a fight. They would never fight before season four. They would just kind of tacitly shove everything down and they start actually screaming at each other in season four and letting it all out. And I just found this dynamic to be incredibly interesting because the power dynamics completely shift. At the beginning, the power dynamics were not traditional. Like the woman had more power than the man in the beginning of the relationship, right? Shiv kind of held all the cards because she had what Tom wanted. However, at the end of the season, at the end of the whole show, Tom holds all the cards because he has maneuvered his way into becoming the CEO of the portion of the company that's being bought out by the tech company. It was a position that Shiv thought that she was going to get, that she was all, you know, ready to take on. And at the last minute, Tom is picked for it. He 
tells her at their her dad's house while they're going through his things after he's died. And there's a moment where you think Shiv will leave him for this. Like, this is the last straw. She will leave because this is, like, the the ultimate thing that she's ever wanted is to be a CEO of this company. And Tom has taken it from her. But at the very end, she ends up aligning herself with Tom. She votes against her brothers and the board. And the last scene is Tom gets into his car and Shiv's already in there. And he puts his hand out. This is so, this is so powerful, even though it's so simple. He puts his hand out and makes a motion like, you know, give me your hand. And she just like ever so lightly rests her hand on top of him. But that is enough to communicate that she knows he's the one in charge now. He's the one who has all the power because she couldn't get what she wanted. She couldn't become a CEO and he took it from her. And that means that at the end of the day, he holds more power in their relationship, even if she continues to, you know, kind of make these ultimatums or redraw the boundaries of their relationship like she did on the wedding night. And so from my perspective, like the Tom and Shiv storyline of the show is really about petty revenge against a partner that sometimes what happens in relationships is something happens that forever changes your relationship or changes the way you see your partner. And you kind of have two choices. You can leave the relationship and, you know, walk away before things become too bad and, you know, become too toxic for you to still have maybe some sort of like co-parenting or friendly relationship. Or you can stay in the relationship and continue to exact these like petty revenges against each other. Now, because we're talking about billions of dollars, it doesn't seem like a petty revenge because Tom like took her job. But this is like the exact same thing as in a non-wealthy couple, like, um, you know, a partner maybe sabotaging a family event, right? But like at the last minute saying, oh, I'm, I'm sick, I can't go. And then you have to show up at the event by yourself or um, deciding at the last minute that they no longer want to share finances and pulling their money out of a bank account. Like these kind of petty little revenges that can take place in a relationship that has gone sour. I think that's what Tom and Shiv represent. And, you know, the the ending is ambiguous. We don't quite know what's going to happen to these characters. But I think the fact that Shiv puts her hand on Tom's shows us that they are both willing to stay locked into this relationship as long as they get to continue to take revenge on each other. And whoever is on top at the moment, like gets to be on top for a moment before the fighting starts up again. And so at the end of season four, Tom is the one who's on top. He holds the power. That doesn't mean that Shiv isn't ever going to try to topple that dynamic again. Um, but like, you you know these couples. Every one of you listening knows one of these couples where every time you hang out with them, they just say like the just most heinous things to each other. And they're always sniping at each other. And or like if you know one of them separately, like telling you these horrible stories about their partner. That's Tom and Shiv plus, you know, like $10 billion. <laughs> and so I think it there's like a, a poll to think of it as elevated of like a very Macbethian plot line or, you know, some sort of like greater relationship struggle because they have all this wealth at their fingertips. But at the end of the day, they're that crappy couple that you know that can't stop fighting and drives you crazy and you don't know why they stay together. Tom and Shiv stay together because of power and money I think that's why a lot of couples stay together. Like money is a big reason why people stay together, even if they're not happy. 
again, it's just escalated because we're talking about literally billions of dollars. So yeah, I think that is one of the very interesting relationship dynamics in this show is the the kind of power differential differential between Tom and Shiv. Um, the next relational dynamic that I want to talk about is is really about Kendall and kind of everyone, <laughs> but about the way that Kendall kind of shows up in relationships. Now, in general, Kendall Roy really vacillates between extreme highs and extreme lows, sometimes even in the span of one episode. Partially, this is due to his chronic substance use during the show. It's seen that he struggles with, um, I would say just like general narcotic use. I think it's mostly like cocaine and pills that he does, but it seems like he will kind of engage in any type of substance he can get his hands on. And of course, alcohol is like just always around. Um, And so he can, he'll take drugs that are like stimulants and be very up, be very amped, be very ready to go. And then he crashes. And when Kendall comes down from a substance, you can see that he's finally dealing with his whole life. Like the weight of his life crashes down onto him at the same time that he's coming down from a high. And it's pretty clear that he's using drugs to like manage how he feels about his own life, which seems to be not very great. Uh, The ultimate example of this is in one of the seasons, he turns 40 and he throws this massive party that's like so annoying. It's so pretentious. It's like the the stereotype of like a rich frat boy throwing a party is what Kendall's 40th birthday party is. And for most of it, you know, he's amped. He's having a good time. He's up um, and ready, you know, ready to party. But uh, as we end the party, as like he starts to come down from his drugs and he realizes that he lost the present that his kids gave him the full weight of kind of what's going on, the fact that he's alienated from his father, the fact that he's alienated from his own kids because of his contentious divorce. He's alienated. He doesn't have a lot of true friends, he, he's realizing at the party. And when his siblings show up at the party, it's just to make a business deal. They're actually not there to see him. And it all comes crashing down once he's no longer high and ends up like being wrapped in a blanket by his girlfriend and taken home because he can't function anymore he's falling apart so that's partially why Kendall's dynamic is the way it is is he is using substances to manage the fact that he can't handle his life um also brief content warning but uh, for suicide but Kendall is suicidal for a large portion of the show as well um there's a very powerful scene in the second season where um he's on like a balcony in his father's building like in the at the business and he's con he looks like he's contemplating jumping off and then he comes back the next day to the same ledge and they've put in um, anti-jumping glass. And he realizes like they put it there because of him and everyone can tell that he's suicidal. So his lows are very low and his highs are very high. Uh, and most of that I think is facilitated by the substance use. And then the other part of it is he has some pretty unresolved trauma around the fact that he killed someone by getting in a car with them while he was intoxicated and he was the one driving but he faked the scene to look like the other person was driving and never had to like kind of take accountability or responsibility for that and then in the last episode he hints that he might have killed someone else as well so like lord knows how many people Kendall has killed it's it seems to be more than one and it's pretty probably directly related to his substance use so Kendall is just a a ticking time bomb he's running around with these unresolved issues, this unresolved trauma, 
um, this like out of control substance use that he can't seem to quite get a handle on. And every time that he like enters into a relationship, either with a new woman or tries to reconcile with his siblings, he always comes in very high. Things are awesome. He's euphoric, uh, especially with women. Like there's a, an actress that he starts seeing and he's like, you're the best person ever. Like he's totally in love with her from the get go. He flies her out of the country to come stay with him and party with him. And then several days later, he's hit his low and he's ashamed of how he's behaved. He's, uh, you know, ashamed of what he's said to these women or, you know, the fact that he's like, let them get close and he, he doesn't really love them, but he was kind of riding this euphoria of a new relationship or a new hookup. And so inevitably ends up like paying them off and sending them home. And in psychodynamic terms, we would call this idealization and devaluation, where idealization is you're the best person ever, like nothing will ever go wrong, like total idealization of a person, no acknowledgement of their flaws. And devaluation is then the exact opposite, only focusing on their flaws. You're the worst person ever. I never should have done this. And Kendall vacillates between that pretty frequently with his relationships, um, even with his ex-wife, like they, they've gotten a divorce, but there are times where it seems like he wants to get back together with her. He thinks she's so awesome. She's so cool. And he tells her this to her face and then he'll flip and all of a sudden she's the worst ever. And he's about to go get a court order to take full custody of their kids away from her. So suffice that to say, like Kendall is not very stable in relationships and because he's doing this constant push-pull of you know love me be close to me uh, pushing getting away from me he he maps on pretty closely to an image of what we might call disorganized attachment which is an attachment style that develops out of typically like severe abuse and neglect and results in a person viewing their attachment figures as a source of comfort and simultaneously a source of great fear. There are hints that Logan probably did perpetrate physical abuse against the children, so I don't think it's out of the woods to say that Kendall probably caught the brunt of that and so has developed this very maladaptive style of attachment and continues to enact that in all of his relationships. There's a trend online of people calling Kendall baby girl and really viewing him as this very like tragic figure. And I can understand that because it seems like he's very out of control of a lot of his actions, especially the way that he relates to other people. He, he does not seem to be able to regulate himself or make kind of informed decisions about how he wants to go forward. He's just kind of caught up in the rush of either chasing the high or avoiding the lows. However, again, because he has, like, immeasurable wealth, like, he could afford some therapy, you know? <laughs> like, Kendall could – he has the access to resources to work on some of this stuff, and he kind of, like, actively refuses to engage with anything that could help better him. He stays sober for, like, you know, 0.5% of the show and then relapses pretty quickly and, and never even – makes an attempt to act like he's going to be sober or reduce his substance use again. He uses his siblings as his therapists and or his priests and he goes to them and like confesses some of these things and then turns around and tries to weaponize what he knows about them against them and I think this really shows in the final action 
final episode of season four where, pardon my French, but Kendall truly shows his ass, <laughs> where he corners Shiv because she has changed her mind about how she's going to vote. She's going to vote for the deal. That would mean that Kendall does not get to be CEO. Roman has checked out of, of this interaction, which I'll talk about him in a little bit. Roman's completely checked out. Shiv is, first of all, pregnant. Second of all, trapped in a very difficult situation between essentially her husband and her brother and is trying to figure out, she excuses herself from the board meeting to figure out what she's going to do. And Kendall follows her and at first he's being nice and he's trying to convince her and remind her of like what the plan was. And then he starts screaming at her and ultimately says, I deserve this. I was promised this. I will literally die if I don't become CEO. And we realize in that moment that his true addiction the whole time has been to the power and wanting to run Waystar and Kendall will do whatever it takes to get it. And, you know, again, the show ends kind of ambiguously, so we don't know if the siblings ever reconcile. But I feel like what Kendall says in that last episode is kind of earth shattering to his siblings. He fights Roman, like physically fights Roman and um, tries to fight Shiv while she's pregnant and basically admits to potentially killing someone else and kind of threatens them by saying, I've killed two people, I could kill you. Which is not great to hear from your sibling. Um, And that's why I characterize this as Kendall truly showing his ass in the final episode. Because I think this is him mask off. He's been masking with drugs and sex and everything that he does for the whole show. And this is just a pure, true moment from Kendall where we realize that a lot of what he said, even to his own siblings, has been about maneuvering himself to get this power and he's so desperate for it. He, I think he believes that he will die if he doesn't get the CEO chair of, of this company. And ultimately, he doesn't. And so I think that's why the ending is so ambiguous of, do we think that Kendall will die by suicide? Will he kill himself because he didn't get the CEO position? And we don't know. We don't get any follow-up on that. Um, but I think it's something to think about. His, his addiction is really to power and the other things that he's addicted to are really things that serve to bring him closer, what he thinks to bring him closer to power. But if I numb myself with drugs and I take all these stimulants and I can be up and ready to go and make these like CEO bro decisions so that I can continue to hold on to this power, right? The way that he treats women is a way for him to continue to hold on to power in these micro interactions, even if he doesn't have his full power in the macro sense yet. So I think that it boils down to Kendall is addicted to power and it just infiltrates every relationship that he has. And it makes sense why at the end of the day, he's so isolated and so close to considering things like suicide because he doesn't really have any substantial relationships in his life. There's, I don't think there's anyone that he could call that would really be there for him during his darkest moments because he's burned through all those bridges or not even built those bridges because he hasn't viewed those people as necessary to getting him what he really wants. And so this is just a reminder that we know social support is an incredible protective factor for suicide and suicidality. So having people around you, people that you can connect with, who can be there for you, even if you're not able to talk about everything that's going on, social support is incredibly important and that's why things like the crisis text line or the uh, NAMI crisis line is so important because 
you get to talk to someone if you call or text one of those lines or message them there is another person on the other side who can offer social support and specific crisis oriented social support um so if i were recommending something for kendall it would be to reach out to those types of resources because he doesn't have to be alone when he's going through those things So moving on to the last relationship that I think really stands out is Roman and Logan. Roman is the youngest son of the family. I guess there's some confusion if Shiv or Roman is the youngest, but I think Roman has big little brother energy. He definitely seems to be the youngest. So that's my preference to interpret it that way. So as we start to move through the show, you realize that Roman is very attached to his father and doesn't see Logan in the same way that his siblings do. I kind of think that this is actually very common for youngest children. They often get to see parents in a very different space than the oldest children did. Uh, I don't have like research to back this up, but kind of like observations I've made in clinical and, and personal work is that um, the oldest siblings often encounter the parents at the worst time in their lives, particularly um, with like young parents who just are not like equipped to be parents at the time. And so oldest children tend to be the ones who bear the brunt of abuse, whether it's physical or emotional, um, as they like came first. And it kind of sucks to say this, but Like sometimes it's like the parents get to practice on the oldest children. And so the younger siblings maybe have a different experience. Again, this is not like research based. This is just like observations I've made in my practice. Um, But like this idea that parents are maybe a little more stable by the time younger siblings are born and they can get a hold of themselves better can often relate relay into the younger siblings having a much closer or emotionally warm relationship with the parents than the older children. And I think that that is clear in the succession family to varying levels. Like Connor has probably the most platonic, not platonic, surface, (laughs) surface relationship with Logan being like the oldest, oldest child from the first marriage. He you know, definitely expresses like love and compassion for Logan, but they also seem to have a very, very surface-based relationship. And Logan has almost no interest in Connor and what Connor is up to. Then Kendall and Shiv, Kendall, I think, gets the most of the harshness from Logan. And Shiv, although she often gets warmth from Logan because she's the only girl, and there's some like misogyny there and and some patriarchal stuff going on. She also gets the brunt of Logan's wrath quite often. But Logan seems to have a very soft spot for Roman. And even though Roman is the weirdest of his children, he harbors a very soft spot for him up until a scene toward the end of the show where it is discovered that Roman has been sending pictures of his genitals to the lawyer for the family and it's discovered because he accidentally sends the picture to his dad instead of the lawyer and from that moment there becomes a wedge between Roman and Logan because Logan is convinced that Roman is a weirdo. 
like and and is like a sexual freak and cannot be trusted with the company but throughout the show you know there are times where Kendall or Shiv or both you know move to cut Logan off or move to kind of have like the siblings take one side versus Logan and Roman always gets pulled into the middle and has a hard time completely cutting off his dad and he is also the sibling that seems to take Logan's death the hardest which you know culminates in this very chaotic scene in the funeral where Roman is supposed to be giving the final um, speech or the eulogy and he can't do it and he breaks down and he's crying and he really revert he really regresses to a very like childlike state where he starts begging for them to get Logan's body out of the coffin and like with this almost like childlike belief that like if we get him out of the coffin like maybe he'll still be alive or if he's not in there then maybe we can keep pretending that this hasn't happened and so Roman is like emotionally very stunted and I obviously like that is related to his childhood but it seems like he probably got more affection from Logan than his older siblings but at the same time still experienced the kind of wrath of Logan that they all did as well while they were growing up and while they were adults. The other interesting thing about Roman is that while he's also like very concerned with his relationship with his father and wanting to be very close to him, he is very like disconnected from other relationships. We see him with like a girlfriend at the beginning and there's never really any sign that they break up. She just stops showing up and people stop asking him where she is. And so he's very capable of just cutting people off Um, toward the end of the series, he starts just like firing people from the company. He is very quick to just kind of put that wall up and cut that relationship off. And that is in such contrast to his inability to cut Logan off or put up any boundaries in his relationship with his dad. Uh, I, I talked about Kendall's attachment style, which I think tends to, tends toward a little more like the disorganized style. Roman tends more toward the avoidance style where He very much does not want to be perceived as needing anyone or wanting anyone's attention. And the kind of long-running relationship between him and the lawyer, Jerry, for the family is him trying to pursue her, but in this way where he's pretending like he doesn't care whether she's interested in him or not, and he tries to play it off. Like, everything is a joke for Roman. Humor is definitely his coping mechanism but it's it's really intense uncomfortable humor it's very self-deprecating it's very off-putting and I think a lot of that is tied to this kind of like avoidant attachment where he doesn't want anyone to know that he wants them around or that he might need help sometimes and so because he doesn't let people in then when things happen like his dad dying he can't handle it because he doesn't have those people who are around him and so he swings between you know, big emotional breakdowns like at the funeral and then these kind of wild lashing out behaviors like firing people at the drop of a hat um, at the company. While this isn't so much relational, it is also interesting that Roman is the sibling that backs the far right candidate. The way that the election episodes play out are that there's a Democratic and Republican candidate. The Democratic candidate is kind of like a mainstream run-of-the-mill democrat and the republican candidate is 
clearly a amalgamation of you know someone like Trump, but also some of these more extreme far right people like Nick Fuentes, um, which I talked about in my Kanye episode, um, or even you know someone like Ron DeSantis. Like it's the that candidate is a, an amalgamation of all these people, and he's clearly pushing for fascism. And Roman backs that candidate. Shiv clearly backs the Democratic candidate because she's been a Democrat the whole entire time. And Kendall ends up getting kind of caught in the middle because Roman makes the case that, well, we should put this Republican in, in the office because he has promised us that he will help us out around this acquisition and he'll not allow the deal to be done so that Kendall and Roman can remain in power and keep the company and the family. Whereas the Democratic candidate, one, will not make any of those promises because that is a bribe and a quid pro quo um, and also like doesn't wouldn't wouldn't have a regulatory issue with the deal. So Roman backs this candidate purely for business interests. And it really comes to a head on election night when the conservative news network that the family owns calls an election in a state that isn't ready to be called and they call it for the Republican candidate because Roman is there pushing it. And there's this really intense scene where, you know, Shiv is trying to get Kendall to not side with Roman so that this election won't be called for this fascist, like this horrible candidate that's going to do so much damage. And Kendall ends up siding with Roman because he learns that Shiv made a deal behind their back. And so the fate of the country essentially is settled because these siblings continue to backstab each other and are not able to trust each other and it's interesting to see Roman come out in the front of this because most of the time he's very passive he kind of goes along what the siblings want until he hits a a boundary where he's not comfortable like cutting off their dad but this case he really is like spearheading it and he's the one kind of aggressively pushing for this candidate and in the end they don't even get to keep the company he picked this candidate, he pushed this candidate and kind of orchestrated the election going in his way for nothing. They're not going to be CEOs. They're not going to even be a part of the company anymore. It's entirely bought out by this other company and Tom is getting rid of all of them. And so it's interesting to see that the, the kind of one moment where Roman actually is like, not not saying he's competent, not saying he's doing a good job, but like is actually energized and not just being like passively bumped along from situation to situation it has such dire consequences and so i've read some interpretations of the final scene roman has he's at a bar and he's ordering a drink and the way he's looking at the drink has been interpreted to be like he is now going to spend the rest of his life just like boozing and doing drugs and numbing himself to reality and i i think i agree with that interpretation because i think roman is really wrestling with these choices that he made having like literally global consequences and he made them out of a place of like pettiness and didn't even get what he wanted in the end. So I I think that Roman will be more affected by the, you know, events of the show than any of the other characters because in the end he didn't even get close to getting what he wanted. He sold everything out um, and didn't even get the rewards for it. Now, again, at the end of the show, they're still immensely wealthy. Like the deal that they're getting, this company is getting bought out for billions of dollars. They still will have like their generational wealth from their father. Like they are all going to be fine. So it, 
the finale, the climax of the show is so interesting because on one hand, you feel so bad for them because they didn't get what they wanted. You know, these character arcs we've been following for several years just fall flat. They don't they don't get the kind of the, the comeuppance that you would want a character to have at the end of the show. But again, if we zoom out and look at the wealth, do they deserve it? Like, do, do they deserve to be CEOs of companies that they didn't build? Do they get to be CEOs of companies that they really don't have any experience in just because they had a dad who was in charge? And was it even a company that should have continued because of all the harm that it's done? So on one hand, I think, you know, it's empathy is a pretty universal human experience. We can empathize with these characters. But on the other hand, I think it's important to look at these stories through the perspective of the fifth character, through the perspective of wealth. And is is it sympathetic? Is it something we can root for, for people to just continue accumulating resources that they don't need? I don't think so. Um, and I think that even though, I think the thing that succession does that I really enjoy is that it doesn't paint the wealthy as moral or deserving of their wealth. I don't think any of the characters on the show deserve the lifestyles that they live. And that's a myth that is very frequently perpetrated in the U.S. that wealth is somehow gifted or blessed to moral and deserving people. And the reality is, is that it isn't. Wealth is accumulated usually through not very moral practices as Succession highlights and the Murdoch story highlights. And that, you know, we don't truly live in a meritocracy. It's not just about, like, the goodness of your actions being rewarded. Um, And in fact, you can be evil and still not be rewarded, right? Like, Roman essentially does something that's kind of evil, that all the siblings do things that are not good, and they are still rewarded in some way. So that is all I have to say about the show Succession. I really enjoyed it. I will say there's a lot of times where they are talking and I just have no idea what's going on because they talk so many like business terms and it's hard to to follow. But the the actors are so good. The emotional content is there. I really felt like enthralled with it. And it is just interesting to watch these family dynamics play out with this added layer of they are incredibly wealthy, like beyond imagining wealthy. And they still have the same type of family dynamics that, you know, again, 95% of us have. So thank you again for listening all the way through to the end. And I will see you in the next episode in two weeks. Bye-bye.